For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast, where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. My guest today is Greg Jaffe, Director of the Project on Biotechnology at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Greg is an expert on agricultural biotech and biosafety regulatory issues in the United States and around the world. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start with the Center for Science and the Public Interest. For those who aren't familiar with the center, can you give us a quick introduction? Sure. So the Center for Science and the Public Interest, it's a nonprofit consumer organization. Some people might call it an NGO. We work in the food and nutrition space, and we've been doing that since 1971, I believe it is. So for well over 50 years now, we have been advocates and watchdogs on food and nutrition issues, primarily in the United States. So when I explain CSPI to others, I'll often say that CSPI is responsible for getting trans fats labeled and then banned in the United States. Is this true? We are the organization that was the first one to petition FDA first to label trans fat and then secondly to eliminate trans fat from the food supply. And we felt that the evidence was overwhelming that trans fat was not healthy for human consumption. And in fact, there are alternatives and other things that could be used in the food supply to replace trans fat. So there was no need for trans fat in our food supply. We try to make that link between the foods that you eat and people's health. We envision a healthy population with reduced impact and burden of preventable diseases, you know, an equitable food system, we want sustainable food. Those are the type of things that we're trying to advocate for. So I want to turn now to the CSPI Biotechnology Project, which you direct. And before we get into what the project does, I actually want to take a look at the term biotechnology and how it is that you decided to use that term instead of the variety of other terms you could have used that are in the public sphere. So why is it that you were calling it the project on biotechnology specifically? Biotechnology was first, I think, a little more neutral term than some of the other terms that were used. And it was an overarching term. When the project started, we were most interested in genetically modified organisms or genetically engineered organisms and ensuring that they were safe, beneficial, and that there was proper oversight of those crops and animals. Now we have gene editing. We now have cell culture meat. There are lots of other biotechnologies that are used in our food supply and in agriculture. So by picking that term, we could encompass a number of different technologies that fall under that rubric of biotechnology. That confirms my own understanding. So biotechnology, you can think of as an umbrella under which many forms of technology fall, some of which result in genetically modified organisms. The use of other forms of agricultural biotechnology do not result in GMOs. So marker-assisted selection, for example, that's an advanced form of agricultural biotechnology, but the product of that is not considered a GMO. Is this right? That's right. Animal cloning, for example, would be a technology that's been utilized, and some of those animals may be entering our food supply, but it's not what we consider genetic engineering. Okay. So I think that among the public, 
it's my perception that there's an understanding that something is either a GMO or it is an organic product. That dichotomy doesn't exist. There's an entire range of agricultural technologies that are used. It's not that things fall into one category or the other. That may be the way some consumers look at it. I would say that that is a false dichotomy because we have a range of things. Just because something is a GMO doesn't mean that everything else is a non-GMO. Something that doesn't get labeled GMO is not necessarily non-GMO because there may be a different definition for non-GMO. So I look at the world as having multiple buckets. Turning back to the CSPI Biotechnology Project, what are the goals of your project? So our project really tries to do a couple of things. It tries to address the scientific concerns, the government policies, and the corporate practices that pertain to genetic engineering, in particular to biotechnologies more generally. So we're really trying to both figure out what are the scientific benefits and risks of those and articulate those to the public. We're trying to ensure that there's proper oversight of that so that we ensure safety. And we're also trying to look at corporate practices, things like sustainability. How do we ensure that these products are utilized, the ones that are safe, in a sustainable manner? We have a very informative website that articulates several positions of your project, the first of which is, the quote, foods and ingredients made from currently grown genetically engineered crops are safe to eat. So why is it that that, in particular, is important to CSPI? We look at genetic engineering and the products made from that technology and say, well, this could be a very beneficial technology and we could get benefits from that. We want to make sure those products are safe for human consumption, safe for the environment, safe for animals before they are utilized in the marketplace. What I would say is the statement from our website is correct, but I want to qualify it. So as I mentioned earlier, we have different technologies and then we have products made from those technologies. We have to look at each application on a case-by-case basis. So I can't sit here today and say to you, genetic engineering is safe and all products made from genetic engineering are safe. What I can say to you, and that's what the statement was, currently grown crops in the United States are safe to eat because we've looked at those on a case-by-case basis and we've looked at the evidence and the science and the data. There's no evidence of any harmful effects, but you can't say that generically. And I think that's one of the problems with the debate around genetically engineered foods both domestically and around the world, is that people tend to put the whole technology into a category. All GMOs are good, or all GMOs are bad, or all GMOs are safe, or all GMOs are harmful. And you can't really do that. I mean, we could come up with all kinds of technologies that have both good applications and bad applications. The statement you said is correct, but underlying that statement is this concept that we have to look at things on a case-by-case basis. Talk about genetic engineering, we're talking about the crop. We have to look at the trait that was introduced into that crop, how that crop is grown, in the environment? Where is it out in the open? And then we have to also look at how it enters our food supply and becomes part of our food supply. And all of that goes into the assessment, whether that product is safe. It also goes into whether it's beneficial or has negative impacts. I do want to turn to public perceptions of genetically engineered foods in a moment. But if it is the case that currently grown genetically engineered foods are safe to eat, why is it that they are such a lightning rod? Having covered and worked on food security policy for the better part of the last decade, I find that there's almost no other issue that's as divisive as this issue is. If it's the case that major scientific bodies in the United States and across Europe and around the world have determined that currently grown genetically engineered crops are safe, why is it that they're such a lightning rod? The way I guess I can answer that question quickly is to say that any new technology, consumers are always going to be a little hesitant. Food is important to people for religious reasons, for cultural reasons. And so we tend to eat the things that we grew up eating, things that we're comfortable with. 
Then you add that many of the first genetically engineered crops were produced by multinational corporations at a time when people were critical of those multinational corporations for many reasons, for intellectual property, control of the food supply, the industrial agriculture and the pollution impacts of that. All those came into play with genetically engineered crops when they first came out on the market. And then I think one of the other things is that many of the benefits, and there have been some benefits from the current products that are grown and eaten in the United States, fall on the farmer. But they don't fall on the consumer. For many consumers, if you have a new technology and a new product that they're unsure about and there isn't a benefit to them, then they hesitate in consuming that product. And so I think all of that goes into some of the debate that's gone on around genetic engineering. I'm summarizing years of debate and hundreds of books written on that subject. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And it is a very politically complex issue. Just to, to make a note on a couple of things you raised, one is they were developed at a time when the public was already primed to be suspicious of them. So for example, in Europe, there was already a controversy over the safety of meat from animals that had had mad cow disease. And I think it was the European Commission at the time had said that that was safe to eat, safe to eat, safe to eat. And then all of a sudden they reversed their decision. Around the same time, GMO products from the United States were coming to market there, and the Europeans were already inclined to be very suspicious of that. So that's one of the many influences into at least European suspicion of genetically engineered products. And also to your point about new technologies that have benefits to consumers. So you might have populations that use other products, for example, medicines that are developed using a lot of these same technologies, and they'll readily accept the medicines, but not the foods developed with similar technologies. It's just interesting to think about ag biotech in the context of other technologies that have developed over the past quarter century, at least, many of which we readily accepted into our lives. And yet this remains one that's still incredibly controversial. When I think about public perception of foods that are developed through ag biotech or genetically engineered foods, the way that I see it is that I often think that the public will conflate a number of issues when determining their position. So they will say that they're against GMO foods, yet not be able to articulate if that's because of risk of safety to human health, perception that they're less nutritious, perception of risks to the environment, association with industrial agriculture. But that's the way that I understand public perception is that there are a lot of issues that come into play and people don't always take time to tease them out. What do you think about that? Although I work for a consumer organization, one thing I've learned is it's very hard to know exactly how different consumers think about different things. I don't think we have an average consumer or a sort of quintessential consumer that speaks for all consumers. The way I look at how the public perceives GM foods is I think there's a small segment that finds them safe and highly beneficial. A lot of those are scientists and members of those companies that produce them. And on the other side, we have a small segment also that thinks that these are unsafe and wants to avoid them at all costs. I can't tell you whether that's 3%, 5%, 10%. In some ways, it's very much a bell curve. You have the extremes on both sides that are very vocal and feel very strongly about their position. And then you have the general public. You have this broad group of people who I think know very little about genetically modified foods. And so I think you may be correct in saying they don't know a lot about this. And so these people may be hesitant at first or they may be embracing at first. But whatever position they take, it usually isn't with a lot of facts or science behind it. I think as you correctly said, they can't necessarily articulate the position they're taking. There was a great poll that talked about it, how people had a lot of opinions, but they also, those opinions were not very deep. In other words, that they had a viewpoint, but that viewpoint could be very easily changed if they heard reputable information from somebody who they trusted to change that. And so that's the way I look at the public on this, that there really isn't a lot of people who have strong opinions about this. There are small segments that have very strong opinions and a lot of people who really don't know a lot about the subject. 
It makes me think of, again, other technologies that we're using in our lives right now. So one being cell phone technology and social media platforms where people have a lot of opinions and a lot of information just because they're regular users of these things. Or you look at vaccines and people have a lot of opinions and not everybody has a lot of information. I mean, they, they have it if they look for it. I tend to think that the debate over genetically engineered foods is unique in the sense that the controversy hasn't resolved over the past generation or so. That's true. The one thing I would say is that when you look at cell phones, I think everyone perceives a benefit from those, an immediate benefit. It changes their lives. And so while there might be something on the internet that talks about the risks to that, the risks to brain cancer or whatever they would find, they also see a direct benefit to themselves, that it helps their lives. It helps them communicate with their kids. It helps them get directions when they're driving in the car. And so one of the things that's hindered genetic engineering all these times has really been a lack of benefits to the consumer. And the example I might give is Impossible Foods. So Impossible Foods is a plant-based burger that uses an ingredient that's genetically engineered. They use heme, their special sauce, the secret ingredient that gives that plant-based burger taste of a meat burger. And they produce it. They took a gene that produced a molecule in the roots of soybeans, took that, put it into a microorganism, and they produce that heme in fermentation. And then they put that in these burgers. And so those products are even labeled as bioengineered. They haven't hidden this. And a lot of consumers love this product, even consumers who might have been hesitant about GMOs beforehand, because there's a direct benefit to them. They are the people who want to not eat meat, but have a burger that tastes like meat. They see a benefit for that. And so I think that's what's been missing in a lot of the debate. Again, we have products that, that have benefits, and I could talk about the benefits to farmers. I could talk about benefits to the environment, but haven't really had a lot of benefits that directly fall on the consumer. And so when you have a calculation where even if there's a slightest bit of risk or you even perceive some risk that isn't even real risk, but there's no benefit, that changes the calculation. Thanks for that example of impossible foods and impossible meats. That is a good segue to a question I want to ask about labeling. You mentioned that that is one product that says that it's been bioengineered. In 2016, the Obama administration passed the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Law. We're at the point where regulations have developed and the law will be implemented uh, starting in 2022. But just to back up, so if genetically engineered foods are safe for human health, why is it that this law was passed making it necessary to disclose the existence of these ingredients in foods? I can tell you that there was a large movement in the United States to require labeling of foods that were made from genetically engineered crops and animals. And several states passed laws that would require labeling at the state level. And in fact, Vermont, it came into effect. And I think there was a lot of pressure by a lot of different stakeholders, not just industry, but other stakeholders, that if we are going to go down and provide this information to consumers, that we should do it in a uniform way in a national standard. And so Congress passed the National Bioengineered Disclosure Law, as you mentioned, in 2016 to preempt those state laws. So states no longer can have laws. And so to the extent that consumers are going to have access to information about bioengineered content of their foods, that be done in a nationwide manner. I first crossed paths with you when you were speaking on a panel about the general topic of safety of genetically engineered foods. And this was going on 10 years ago. So this was before this law was passed. And at the time, I recall that it was your position that we should not require labeling of foods as containing this ingredient because it might lead the consumer to confusion to assume that that product was unsafe. Is that accurate? I think that is accurate. Before this law was passed, we had a position that it was the most important that the federal government ensure that these products are safe and that FDA should have a mandatory pre-market approval process for these foods. 
They currently don't have that. They have a voluntary consultation process. And while all the companies have been through that voluntary consultation process, we still believe that it would be better and there would be more consumer trust for these products if at the end of that process, FDA stated their opinion on these foods and that until they gave their opinion that they were safe, that those foods could not be marketed. The history of the labeling debate in the United States, to some extent, was a lot of people said, well, we're not sure these foods are safe or we want to avoid them because they're not safe. And so we want them to be labeled. Consumers who want to can choose not to purchase these because they think they're not safe. And I guess my position was that as a consumer, I don't want to have to go in the store and decide, is this food safe or not safe? Most consumers don't want to read the scientific literature. They want to rely on FDA. And so if there's any question about the safety of a food, that food shouldn't be in the supermarket. And so the idea of labeling as a surrogate for safety, and that was what many of the advocates of labeling at that time were suggesting, my view was that that was the wrong thing. That's the wrong public policy. The public policy should be until something's safe, don't let it on the market. But we don't want to label it so that people can make their own decision about whether it's safe or not. I mean, to this day, although this law allows disclosure, so consumers know about it, so it's transparent, the law specifically says that this is not a statement on safety. And so that is something that, that I think is really important. Sure. So fast forward a few years after you spoke on that panel, the law was passed. What do you see as some of the potential benefits of it? The benefits of this law are twofold. One, it does provide information about bioengineered content to consumers who want to know that information. And two, it provides it in a uniform way, as we discussed, so that it's uniform around the whole country, so that all the consumers are getting the same information. So I think those are two of the major benefits. You've done some writing recently about the potential pitfalls, at least of the implementation of this law. Can you articulate a few of them? I can, but if it's okay with you, I'd first like to just give the listener a little bit of what the law requires, because I think there are a couple terms that really need to be described. So we've been talking about the National Bioengineer Disclosure Law. And so consumers might say, well, you know, you and Caitlin were just discussing genetic engineering, and you were talking about genetically modified and GMOs. What's this term bioengineered? And so Congress chose to use the term bioengineered instead of genetically engineered or genetically modified. The disclosures that will occur in this law will use the word bioengineered. And one of the confusions that I mentioned in that article is the fact that consumers don't know this term bioengineered. Instead, they know the term genetically engineered or genetically modified or GMO. And USDA and the regulations specifically said you can't use those terms. So the terms that consumers would be most knowledgeable about, now they're going to be exposed to a new term. And I think that will be confusing. The other thing I wanted to mention is this is a disclosure law. I want to make the distinction between what is disclosure versus what is labeling. Historically, consumers think of labeling as information that's on the package. For example, if you go in the supermarket, you see the nutrition facts label. It's a box on the side panel of or the back panel of the product. It lists all the ingredients. That's label, a labeling requirement by the law. What Congress did here is said, we want to disclose this information, but they give the food manufacturer, so the person who's producing that food, four different ways to provide that information to the consumer. They can choose to provide that information on the package, the equivalent of a label with text that says the product is bioengineered or has a bioengineered ingredient in it. They can use a symbol. Many of you might be familiar with the organic symbol. Well, this is a circle and the symbol, it says bioengineered in it. They can also put a QR code on the package and the QR code can say, for more information, scan here. And the consumer can scan that code with their phone, which will take them to a website. And that website will tell them whether the product has bioengineered content on it. Or they can also put a phone number to text. 
you can text that number and they'll text you back a text that states whether the food is bioengineered or not. So there are four options and therefore it's called disclosure because the information may or may not be on the package. You may need to either text to get that information or go scan a QR code to get that information. And that leads to, again, one of the reasons that there may be consumer confusion on this, because the information won't be readily available without the consumer who wants to know taking a step to get that information. You may see some similar products, cornflakes made from Kellogg's and a cornflakes made from General Mills, and one of them might have a disclosure on the package, and one might have it in the QR code, but you might not have access to it. So it also may get harder for consumers who are trying to make comparisons for them to make comparisons. So does this give the consumers information they know or add to consumer confusion is the title of my article. Again, I don't think all consumers want to know this information, but there is a segment of the population that is interested in this information. I think the overall, the law will allow them to get that information, but there are a number of exemptions. There are a number of things in the regulations that may make that more difficult. So for example, highly processed ingredients won't need to be disclosed. They can be voluntarily disclosed as saying they're derived from. And the majority of foods from genetically engineered crops will be these highly processed ingredients. So anytime you have a voluntary disclosure within a law or regulation like this, again, you're going to show distinctions that don't exist because some products will have derived from bioengineered on the label. Some won't. Those products may be identical in terms of it, but the consumer will perceive them as not being identical because of the, of the information. So while the law expected to have uniformity, we won't necessarily see that uniformity in the marketplace. One example you gave in your article is whether an ingredient is required to be labeled as bioengineered depends on what order it falls in the ingredient list. So if it's the second or the third item, it might may or may not have to be labeled. Is that right? Yes. So again, this is something that's in the weeds for us lawyers and Washington regulator types. So when the states passed their labeling laws, they only could cover foods that are regulated by FDA. As background to your listeners, 80% of the food supply approximately is regulated by FDA. 20% of the food supply, products that have meat and poultry and eggs in them, are regulated by USDA. So when you or I go to buy a chicken breast in the supermarket, that's regulated by USDA, and they regulate the labeling around that food. So if we had a genetically engineered chicken, USDA would decide whether or not it was going to be labeled. They already have the authority to do that. This law wasn't going to cover that. But what it was going to cover was products where meat and poultry were small parts of the product, but not the major ingredient in the product. And so Congress said, we're going to cover products that have meat and poultry in them as long as the first ingredient isn't meat or poultry, or the second ingredient isn't meat or poultry when the first ingredient is broth or water. And that was done so that they wouldn't cover things that were really important for USDA. And so the example I give in my article is soup. If you had tomato soup, if it has a genetically engineered ingredient in it, it gets labeled bioengineered, okay, even if that ingredient is a small ingredient in it. If we have chicken noodle soup, if chicken is the first ingredient in the chicken noodle soup, then it's covered by the exemption. And so it won't be labeled bioengineered, not necessarily because of the chicken, but because some other ingredient, let's say cornstarch, which was came from genetically engineered corn, was in that soup. If it wasn't for the chicken being the first ingredient, it would be disclosed as bioengineered. In this case, it isn't. So if chicken is the first or the second ingredient, they aren't covered. But if chicken is the third ingredient, and so the examples I give, I think, are two different progressive soup. One of them, chicken is the second ingredient, and one chicken is the third ingredient. And so to the extent that they have a bioengineered ingredient anywhere in their ingredient list, one of those will be covered by the law, but one would not be covered by the law. So it's very complicated. 
It is complicated. And I guess all this to say that the absence of a bioengineered label doesn't necessarily mean that there's no product in that food that has been bioengineered. Is that right? Right. So in any law that we have, we always have exemptions. That's why I think I said at the beginning of this podcast that one of the reasons I think there'll be confusion, there will be things that are disclosed as bioengineered. There will be other things that might have bioengineered ingredients in them, but won't be disclosed because they either come from a small manufacturer that's exempt, fit fall within this exemption of having a meat as the first or second ingredient in them. They have lower than the threshold of 5%, but they don't qualify necessarily as non-GMO because non-GMO, which is not a government imposed standard, but a private stakeholder standard at this point might say any amount doesn't allow it to be non-GMO. And so that's why the world will be more complicated. There won't be just two different options. Thanks for bringing up that point. You brought that up earlier in your article also, that there is no regulation of the term non-GMO. So essentially any producer can put that on their food and that's not scrutinized. Right. And that's one of the things that we advocated for when the law was being passed. We felt that Congress should have given USDA the authority to fine at non-GMO so that there would be a standard for that. Because right now, some companies use private certifiers, such as the non-GMO project, but others just come up with their own standard. And so for consumers who want to purchase non-GMO, and I'm not saying that any consumer should or shouldn't purchase that, but for the ones who do want to purchase that, it's unclear to many of them if they're really getting what they pay for and knowing what that standard is and having credibility behind that standard. So the regulations have been developed. All of this will come into play in 2022. Is there anything that can be done now to improve the implementation of this? If somebody asked me what could be done to make the law and implementing regulations less confusing, I would suggest that the new administration rethink some of the decisions that were previously made, in particular the decision that they said that you couldn't use substitute the term genetic engineered or genetically modified for the term bioengineered. I still think that was a wrong decision and that using those multiple terms, I think, would allow consumers to understand the information better. So that would be something that would need to be changed in a regulation, unlikely to happen now before January 2022, because that would trigger delays in the implementation of the law. The second one was this issue of voluntary disclosure of the highly processed ingredients. I think that will also lead to a lot of confusion. And I think that there are many food companies that wanted to disclose that information and it would have been better to make that uniform throughout the country. The other piece of information that I think would be really helpful, which I don't think has been allowed for in the law and regulations, is for consumers to know which ingredients are the genetically engineered or the bioengineered ingredients. You can produce a product that has a disclosure that it's bioengineered, but it could be a small ingredient that may or may not be important to that consumer. But all of those changes would require changes to the regulation, which would take time. The National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Law was passed under the Obama administration. After that, having covered the Trump administration's oversight of biotech and GMO products, how do you think things might change under the Biden administration? Well, I think the Trump administration had one goal, and that goal really was to deregulate or to reduce oversight to the industry. So they posed or finalized a number of regulations or policies at USDA and EPA in particular that attempted to do that. And when looking at those, they were not particularly science-based. And in fact, they did not have the scientific facts. So as an organization, we're not against deregulation or reducing oversight where it's appropriate. We don't want to waste government resources and societal resources regulating things that don't need to be regulated. But there has to be a scientific basis for that. And there wasn't in the Trump administration. And so 
The hope is that the Biden administration will look at those proposals, bring science into those proposals, and then set up science-based regulatory systems that are efficient and both safeguard the public and the environment from unsafe products, but allow safe products to get to market quickly so we can get the benefits of those products. Coming back to our conversation about public understanding or lack of understanding of genetically engineered products, is there anything that you've read recently that you think was particularly thorough and accessible to the public on this? I find that of all the issues that I look at, this is one where it's particularly difficult to find fair and balanced information on this particular topic. So anything that you've come across recently that you would recommend? So there hasn't been much recently written on this topic that I would say You know, the National Academy of Sciences did a study a few years back on genetically engineered crops, a look at at all the data out there. And while the study is not really accessible to consumers, the whole of it, I think the executive summary chapter is, and that can give you an idea in a a fact-based, balanced way about the issues and where the evidence is about the benefits, about the risks, about the regulatory systems. So if there was anything, I would say the genetically engineered crop study from the National Academy of Sciences, which is already three or four years old, might be something I'd look for. Well, perhaps that's an opening for me or for you, although I know that the information that you produce is already incredibly useful as well. We do have a frequently asked questions pamphlet on our website that I think is useful information to people, again, a few years old. The other one is Tamar Haspel, who's a Washington Post reporter. She did a column called Unearthed in Food Section of the Washington Post for a number of years. And she had a number of articles on this topic that I thought were really well done, well researched and well thought through. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSISfood. Until next time.